It's funny. People always be like, don't forget about the little people. It's like, why do they refer themselves as little anyway, you know? Why don't you just get big with me? They can see it in my eyes. What is up, everybody? It has been a fucking minute, hasn't it? Alright, so, I'm going to kind of give you the lowdown on why I was gone last week. Even though I had an episode that I put up uh, at the end of the week before with uh, Andy Williams from Every Time I Die, where we went over wrestling and his upcoming wrestling with uh, Smash Wrestling over in Sarnia. And by all accounts, from everything I've seen, he won the match. I haven't been able to find any video of the match itself, but a win is a win. You take it how you can. Uh, And I'm still really... Thankful that Andy took the time to talk to me about wrestling for about, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, they are currently out on the road right now with Taking Back Sunday, so if they are in a town near you, go fucking see it, because it'll be a phenomenal bill, uh, top to bottom. Uh, that being said, um, I had made mention in a previous episode, I believe the episode with Fallon, about how uh, I was currently in Denver at the time, and since the time of that recording and since the, the last episode went up, uh, I basically went to Denver for about four or five days, came home back to Michigan for about two or three days, then got back on a plane and went to Boston and then caught a hour Amtrak ride to Rhode Island uh, in Providence uh, specifically to go see my friends in Quesera. Uh Quesera was a band that I had booked uh, probably about two years prior on a tour with uh, the band Idola, uh, someone who I really fell in love with upon hearing their song, and then upon listening to this other band that was on the bill, uh, Quesera, I realized that it was a band that I had been in contact with their older drummer uh, in trying to book them shows while they were coming out to record with Matt Dalton at 37 Studios out in Detroit. Um, So it was very serendipitous that I was able to book a band that I had tried booking years previous. Um, So they ended up coming out, playing with us, and so forth. And they just maintain the friendship, as I typically do with a lot of the bands that I book. Um, Because, I mean, why not? They're fucking people, and if they're pretty nice and, you know, whatever, then it's it's hard not to want to uh, maintain a friendship uh, that you've kind of established over, you know, the course of a day or two or three, in the case of the case of Raw Dudes, staying with my wife and I for a long weekend, basically. Um... But we went out to go see them, and I gotta say, it was really different. Seeing a band that we saw play in front of, it was a really poorly attended show, just flat out. Um, I think between my wife, myself, and one of our friends, and maybe outside of the bands themselves, I want to say there was about six or seven people that paid to to get into it. The attendance was very sparse, so to see a hometown show... And their farewell show on top of that, it was like night and day seeing people who knew the songs who were generally generally wanting to be there, and it was and the band coming to an end was it was a big deal to a lot of people. It was very it was very awesome to see uh, such a thing and and feel like I got the real representation of who that band was. And that's not to say that when they played the show here in Michigan that they they phoned it in or didn't give any less excitement. I mean they put on a great show as if it were a packed show and i think that speaks to the the nature of who that band was and still to this day you know i called all all those dudes friends and it was sad to see that they were deciding to call it a day but uh, getting the opportunity to go see them uh and see them play these songs as this entity one last time was really special and i'm i'm glad my wife and i went to go see it um which brings us to part of the other that trip 
uh, when I was talking with Dan, the singer of Quesarau, I asked him what the plan was for the night if we were partying afterward or whatever, and he goes, oh, we're going to, it's thought he said work, and I was like, what an idiot, you're going to go to work the next day after playing this, like, last show, like, you should have asked for it off, but uh, what he said was warped, as in warped tour, and my wife and I have been trying to go to a different venue for a warped tour all this year. Uh, a friend of mine is on the tour, was on it last year, and Detroit is from all accounts from bands and people I know that have been on the tour is probably one of the worst <laughs> dates of the tour as far as just how, how fucking hot it is. Uh, I believe last year it was over 100 degrees. I think one of the other years I'd gone, uh, someone from the stage said that the stage temperature was about 110 or 115 degrees. So, I mean, it's just fucking brutal. Um, not saying that any other data warp tour is not. However, uh, due to that, we've tried going to, there were talks of going to the one in Seattle or Portland or whatever, uh, basically just to beat the heat. And so when we found out there was a warp tour, uh, nearby the next day, we decided to look into that. We rented a car and went to Hartford, Connecticut and getting to see like the back roads and the back country kind of of Providence and, and Connecticut was kind of cool. Gave me a different view of two places that I'd never been, uh, but I must say the warp Tour stop like was a lot nicer. Like there were trees and shade and stuff to actually be in. And I think it was only like maybe 80, 85 tops. Um, so typically it was it was about 20 degrees cooler than it typically is out in Detroit. So it was a very great experience. And one of my friends uh, being on the tour and getting to surprise him was, was a lot of fun. And um, he hooked it up and got us a no escort needed pass. And the only reason I bring this up was because it kind of flows into something I'm going to talk about in a couple of minutes that also happened to me in the interim of the last time I did a podcast episode and did an intro. But with this 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 wristband, it basically is like a backstage pass. Like you can kind of go wherever you don't need someone from a band with you at any point. Like, um, and it's one of those things where I've kind of gotten to have some of these unique experiences over the years of putting on shows and having friends who are on tour or friends of friends who are on tours or whatever. But very much like the case of raw thing, like I think by me not being an asshole, uh, and just kind of learning about the assholes that are in the music industry as a whole, has always made me not want to be that person. And sometimes it fucks me over in a business sense, but I think as a whole, it's better to not be an asshole and it will get you further along because people will be willing to do nice things for you if you are nice to them and do nice things for them. Um, but the thing was, was we went and we sat side stage for 100th, uh, and I don't mean sit, we, we stood. Um, 100th was one of those bands that they've changed their sound over on this in the last record they just put out and became more of like an indie rock kind of band and i had heard an interview with chadwick uh on a podcast and he said that they're not playing any of the old material they're just straight up playing this new album which i love but i love their old shit too so i was interested to see how this was going to go over especially with them being on a stage that's all hard and heavy bands so with that being said we were on on side stage and it was really interesting to to be able to get the perspective of what the band sees at a warp tour because it's a, it's a completely different animal than just going to a show and seeing a band play a normal show from the side of stage and something that I noticed while we were on Warp Tour with these passes and, and getting a unique experience that a lot of people won't get to have was this sense of entitlement that I noticed a lot of people with the same access that we my wife and I had having there are people working on this tour who who bust their fucking ass putting up this 
this traveling festival day in and day out and there's and it's not just the people who are warped who are a crew but it's also the band's crew and all this shit and everyone has to work in a harmonious setting and like just be on top of their shit like i i at several points during the day i kept calling it the all-star tour for touring people and i legitimately think that upon actually seeing it firsthand now like just what goes into the behind the scenes shit of getting a warp tour to run so efficiently and it was one of those things where we are in someone's workspace and i don't think a lot of people were aware of that and to see people just taking advantage of the opportunity they had to to be able to be in that position of seeing a band side stage or whatever I feel like there was just this weird sense of entitlement, like people going into coolers on stage that were meant for the people playing on the stage and the people working on the stage and people just grabbing drinks if they fucking wanted them or putting their shit wherever they wanted, even if there are signs that clearly say, do not put any of your fucking shit here. Like, people just don't give a fuck. And further to that point, like, there were several times there were other bands that we were waiting to see and and go side stage to see... And in that regard, while we're waiting patiently and politely, like you're supposed to in in such a situation, people are just fucking walking up, going on stage, like they don't give a fuck, like there's a band trying to load out, there's another band trying to load in, they're just in the fucking way and oblivious to it. And it was just making me mad because like I, having put on shows, I hate when something outside of my control, technically, makes my show run inefficiently. And so I can only imagine what it's like to be on work tour at that level and having people just be in your fucking way because they think they're supposed to be there and fuck everybody else. And maybe that's not necessarily how those those people think or feel, but from an outsider's perspective just watching everything, that's how I felt like they feel, they were they felt like they were just, well I got this wristband so I can do whatever the fuck I want. And it was it was kind of interesting and then going to one of the other stages that was inside the amphitheater and really seeing how the production crew was really working to just, you know, make these changeover times between the sets, like literally like a, a big stage cut in half and then seeing how these bands literally like this band's done, boom, immediately right next to them, this other band goes, you play for your 30 minutes or so, then the next band starts immediately when you're done. Like it was a trip and I honestly, I have a whole whole nother appreciation for people who are road crew production crew so on and so forth and to see just how well of an oiled machine that that is and knowing that how they have to do it day in and day out like that my fucking hats off to them and it's gonna go it's a thankless job and no one probably really will give two fucks about it but it was something that i throughout the whole day just kept thinking to myself like this is crazy like how well this runs and just how much goes into this that so many people don't get to see um so, I mean, that was a big walk away for me uh, for Warp Tour. Upon getting back home from out east, uh, <laughs> pretty much went right into a string of shows here back home in Grand Rapids. Uh, Falling in Reverse was playing in town. Uh, the only reason I bring this up was because there was a girl who fell while she was crowd surfing. Something I'm starting to notice a lot more, actually, is that people fall a lot more during crowd surfing than I feel like they really ever have. But maybe that's just because people don't want to be inconvenienced, think it's too, too they're too cool to like help with with that or whatever. I don't know. Um, but it was a serious thing. Like it stopped the show for about 10-15 minutes. Uh, Ronnie Radke, the singer of Falling in Reverse, posted a video uh, that took place about a minute to two minutes before that happened. And then posted it in the break of 
the show being stopped for that to happen. And a bunch of people were like, oh, that's so crazy, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, how weird that, like, you post this thing and then, like, basically a show stopped for what one of the security people said was a broken neck. And then all these, like, people are messaging me and so forth and, oh, what happened? And I wondered what happened and that's so sad, what happened? And it was kind of cool to see people actually gave a shit, but... The weird thing was is that Ronnie actually messaged, not messaged, but replied back to me saying, like, oh, she didn't break her neck, this blah, blah, blah happened. And it kind of made me aware of, like, okay, so Venue tells me one thing, you're saying something else, and I can see, you know, potential lawsuits and all that that you're not you're going to say, like, oh, someone broke their fucking neck at my show. Uh, the weird part is is I'm, I'm pretty positive I heard Ronnie say before that song started that he wanted to see people break their necks from headbanging so much. So weird choice of words to then have someone basically almost have a broken neck from falling on it. Uh, so that was an interesting night of stuff. Um, haven't seen Falling in Reverse in pretty much since their first record, so it's really weird to see where they've come from now, uh, where, or I should say where they are now. Um, that leads me into the next day going to see The Color Morale with uh, one of my best friends. Um, I find that as I get older, a lot of people don't go to shows as often as my wife and I do, or even just me. Um, everyone's got kids, jobs, so forth, and going to see live bands and music isn't as important to them. Actually, I should take it back. I won't say it's not as important to them. They just have other priorities that they place in front of it as opposed to going to a show. And that's fine, and I realize, like, my life is different from a lot of my friends in that regard, that I don't have kids, so I'm able to, to go do these things without having to have babysitters and, and so forth. And... Color Morale has been one of those bands that him and I go see whenever they play a headlining show here in Grand Rapids and always have a good time. We call it our mandate. It's a mandated mandate. Um, but the nice thing is, too, is my friend had recorded with Josh Schroeder, who has been on this show, on this podcast. So if you haven't heard that, go back and listen to it. Cheap plug, cheap plug. Uh, and the Color Morale recorded arguably their one of their bigger albums, their breakthrough album, No Hope, with uh, Josh Schroeder. So there's a little bit of a common theme between the band and my my friend that makes it a little easier to talk when he's around them and so when talking with the band dudes it was a uh, it was a lot of fun being able to kind of talk about something a little more locally themed than than just you know hey life on the road so forth um nice thing is it looks like barring something weird happening but uh i've been on the hook to get garrett uh their singer of the color morale on this podcast to talk about a bunch of random shit, um, specifically like horror movies and some other shit like that, which will go real good with this episode, as you'll hear me say in a couple minutes. But uh, it looks like Garrett's going to come on eventually, and it looks like, and I'm looking forward to this because I, I think it'll be fun, at least for me and the, and, the, and Devin, their guitar player. Uh, Devin is a big Packers fan living here in Michigan. I feel like I'm just relegated to like the, the lines because it's easy to follow them since all their games are on TV here. Um... So we are going to talk football, Packers, Lions, all that kind of shit. So uh, hopefully those two will be on soon enough and kind of offer something a little bit different uh, as far as what this podcast, you know, typically we talk about. Um, so that was a good time with Adam and, and all that kind of stuff. And then finally I went with a friend of mine, Rush, who hopefully I will have him on soon as well to talk about this uh, pipe smoking uh, documentary that he is working on that's almost finished i think i don't know keep hearing a lot of different dates about when it's going to be released but uh we'll be talking about that because i think that's kind of interesting and i'd like to support my friends who do a lot of creative endeavors um but we went to go see lemon god rush is somebody you may know of through beardcore 
Uh, bands like Killswitch, uh, back in the day, Howard Jones used to wear the Beardcore shirt. Uh, I think it was on Jimmy Kimmel. If you go back on YouTube and look up the Halloween performance or whatever, I think Howard's wearing the Killswitch or the uh, Beardcore shirt under there. Uh, John Campbell, the bass player of Lamb of God, has been sporting Beardcore stuff. I think it's even on a couple of their DVDs, like during his interview, like he's wearing a Beardcore shirt. Um, so Rush knows a lot of bands from back in the day and, and kind of doing this Beardcore thing. And so I went with Rush as one of his guests, and the show was all right. Um, I think I kind of had a little bit of show fatigue from all the travel and all the shows that we had been to over the last basically two weeks. Um, I think as a whole, I think we ended up cramming about five or six shows in a two-week period with one of them being like a full-on, you know, eight-hour day or more. Um, But with that being said... Lamb of God was okay, Behemoth. I uh, hadn't seen them since OzFest when uh, the year it was free, so over a decade ago. It was good. It was a good show, but very lackluster energy-wise to me. But I think that's kind of what happens when everybody in the band that's on stage plays an instrument, including the singer. Um, so there's that. Lamb of God, it was not the best that I've ever seen them. Um but coming off of a festival date and stuff like that, and they're currently on tour with Slayer, so I feel like the headlining shows in between all of that are kind of weird and can be weird. Um, it was okay. It was a good long set, good career-spanning set, but as a whole, just kind of very eh to me. Um, but it was cool because we got to go hang out with Campbell uh, while we were there, and I had never met it. <laughs> I've met some of the Lamb of God dudes, but it was back when some of them were drinking a lot, and I know they've changed some of their ways, so I, I would say that I met them once when they were different people. Uh, so with that in mind, I, I have pretty much never met any of the band uh, currently. And Campbell was pretty cool and laid back, and it was a really interesting experience to see Randy, at least, uh, being a big fan of Randy and his, his writing and so forth. It was interesting to see Randy kind of talking to other people and being very quiet and uh, not introspective or reflective, but just kind of being more of a listener in the participation part of a conversation as opposed to talking the most. Um, I actually wanted to talk to Randy. However, (laughs) very much like the whole, the whole night revolves around this one dude. And I don't remember the dude's name and it doesn't matter, but if you listen to the Josta show, there's there's what people call punishers, and they are people who don't know how to take social cues and, and not continually talk about something that no one gives a fuck about, and they just do it to death, and they, they punish everyone around them, more or less. So I got to experience arguably one of the worst punishers I think I've ever seen and probably will ever hear of. Um... This guy apparently knew someone in the band, had one of the backstage passes for the after show thing, but when we were all talking about a specific thing, this dude would talk about something completely different and kind of make it about himself, and it wasn't so bad. I would say the changing point was when Randy got up to leave to go to his bus, or go somewhere and read or write or whatever, just basically to be alone, because I think we were kind of being a little bit too loud for maybe the vibe he wanted after a show, and understandable. But one of the dudes that was in this guy's clique was like, oh, Randy, you should get Dez, like a surfboard from Dez if you haven't already, Dez being uh, Dez from, uh, not well, Cold Chamber and uh, Devil Driver. And 
Randy was like, yeah, you know, I, I have one. I'm looking at getting some new stuff, blah, 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 blah. And then this guy, like, one of the dudes is like, well, you need to get, like, a Bluetooth speaker in your surfboard so you could listen to Lamb of God. And Randy's like, that's the last fucking thing I want to do. And Randy kind of took it in stride. And, and having seen footage of him basically dealing with these people, I kind of realized that that's what he was doing was just kind of a deflecting, like, well, you know, I don't really listen to our music. And then kind of take the hint. And the guy didn't. And they kind of went on this topic for about maybe three or four minutes. And... Finally, as Randy's leaving, like, one of the dudes asked to take a photo. Campbell gets up, gets in the photo. And then, like, another dude, like, and I realize it in the struggle of, like, one dude being like, well, you get in this photo, and then when you're done, you take a photo of me with everybody. I just opted to take the photo for everybody so, like, it could be done and over with. And then, like, another dude produced a camera, so I handed it off to Rush so we could try to get this weird, awkward photo shoot all of a sudden done. And then... I asked if, like, anybody else wanted to get their photo done. Uh, and then I got, like, basically everyone's phone that was in this this little group of people. And I kind of noticed Campbell at one point, like, lean back a little bit and kind of mouth, like, thank you uh, for, for taking the reins and doing this so it gets done quicker. And it was just one of those things where, as a whole, I realized that this is what bands at this, this stature deal with day in and day out. And... I don't know that I would be so kind because at one point the Punisher turned toward me and started talking to me about my Freddie Mercury tattoo and how he just seen Queen, although I said he didn't because Freddie Mercury pretty much is Queen to me. Plus, you know, they're missing some other members and so forth. But long story short, he was telling me about how he went and saw the band, showed me photos, blah, 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 blah. Then segued back over to Campbell to show him how he's learning Lamb of God songs on drums and was showing everybody. And it was really awkward. And... I know I have probably been that way to people previously and I try not to do it now and I think I do a pretty good job of not being that guy anymore and I try not to do it even on this podcast and sometimes it's hard and I think sometimes my fanboyness comes out but I hope it comes out in a different way of being more like you know an informed fan that wants to ask like legit questions about something that means a lot to me and just kind of getting some background on it, but this was definitely not a case of that. And it kind of bummed me out because I wanted to hang out with my friend who wanted to hang out with his friend that he doesn't get to see, and it just kind of was whatever. There was also another dude, and I kind of want to reach out to this guy and get him on the podcast that was telling some phenomenal fucking stories uh, about his time serving in the armed forces uh, and just some wild and crazy shit. And this Punisher dude interjected and cut him off several times and it was really a bummer and we eventually just left but all of that being said that is what I've been through over the last basically two weeks that was why I kind of took last week off uh, from doing a podcast specifically like I had this one done but I just I needed a break I needed to to get away for a little bit and basically to uh just kind of unwind from my really exhausting two weeks of travel and and staying up late for shows and stuff like that it's uh it's been kind of nice to kind of recharge the batteries and come back at this fresh and listen to some other podcasts and, and kind of get back into the flow of things. Um, that being said, my guest this week is Greg Thomas or Gregory, but Greg is um, sort of currently the guitar player of Misery Signals. Uh, that's how I became aware of him um, way back, like being a big Misery Signals fan, I, I've seen Greg playing with the band a, a handful of times and it was one of those things where um, 
I've been following Greg's career on social media and noticing like him with his own studio, recording a lot of great bands. Um, he just did the new Conveyor record, which is an, a younger band that I've really loved. Uh, their last record is really fucking good. This new record's no different. It's a it's a great record. Um, highly recommend picking that up if uh, if you're into like hardcore music at all. And uh, found out that you know through following Greg on various social media that he's big into horror movies, which is something I have a, a passion for as well. Um, him being a producer and owning his, owning his own studio, Silver Bullet Studios, um, just wanting to talk to him a, a lot about the various production stuff because it's it's something I like to hear. Like I like production and, and figuring out you know something that a producer is doing on a record and why I love the sounds and so forth on a record. But I feel like producers don't really get the you know the attention they deserve for the work that they do and making something sound so good. And I feel like back when I was a kid, like you had your Ross Robinsons and so many other people that I feel like we've kind of gotten away from that where we, we give the credit to the producer for doing what they do and making a band that we love and an album that we love sound as good as it does. So for a lot of reasons, I wanted to talk to Greg and I reached out to him and I thought I kind of got lost in the shuffle, but he ended up emailing me again and we set it up and got it done really quickly and he gave me a lot of his time and uh we had a good chat and i really appreciated him giving me the time and i appreciate you giving me your time at this point because i know i've been talking for about 20 minutes now and like i said i had a lot of shit happen and a lot of cool little stories between everything so i kind of figured something i wanted to start doing is kind of letting you a little bit more into my life because uh, i think that's something that helps you identify with the podcast you listen to is finding a little bit more about the person who's hosting the podcast. Um, I'm kind of of two minds of it where sometimes I don't need to know all this extra shit about somebody to, to enjoy the conversation they have with somebody. But on the flip side, I think if you end up learning a little bit about the person, sometimes some of the things that they bring up, you kind of have a better understanding of why they're mentioning something or repeatedly mentioning something because it's a bigger part of their life. But if you don't really have that first part of the puzzle can't really put the rest of the picture together so uh with that being said uh, i might be a little more into doing something like this obviously it won't take this long because i won't have as much shit having happened to me within a span of a week or less um but that's pretty much why this this week's episode and i didn't have one last week so that's everything that's happened so without further ado here is my chat with greg thomas So with me today is Greg Thomas. Is, do you prefer Gregory? Because I've seen that on some of your stuff too, and I'm like, I don't know Greg. many people who prefer Gregory over Greg. Yeah, Greg, Greg is fine. That's what, <laughs> that's what both my friends call me. Uh, I just put my full name sometimes because it's more if you look up uh, different producers and things like that, there are multiple Greg Thomases. I did notice that when I was trying to find various uh, stuff I knew, but then I just gave up when I was like, that's not you. <laughs> Yeah, there, there is a, and, and a lot of my, like, if you go on a Discogs or all credits or things like that, a lot of my records are scattered underneath all these other producers as well. There's no, like, <laughs> list pretty much, so. Well, I suppose uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Yeah. 
Um, so thank you first and foremost for uh, taking the time out of your, your busy day of uh, recording. I know you were recording a band from around the Michigan area, I think. Uh, Lake yeah, Shore? Lake, or, Lake Effect. Lake yeah. Effect. So many lake bands now. Um, and yeah, then you just... Yeah, and I was saying, I know you just finished up the conveyor record, which sounds great. I've been uh, jamming that quite a bit since it came out. I think like what two weeks ago now. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I guess let's start with the cliche background. How? What got you into music? Well, my uh, my father is a jazz pianist. Was a jazz pianist throughout the uh, '80s. So I grew up going to different like clubs. I guess <laughs> you know, like, we we wouldn't have like babysitters. I would just go with him to different places and he'd be uh, playing in the New England area pretty consistently through till about the mid 90s and he switched careers so I kind of had a love for music from that and then you know started my own bands in probably like 96 was probably like my first like you know little punk band in my basement and then uh, still I'm doing little punk bands in my basement I guess <laughs> later <laughs> what uh what does one do when they stop being a, a pianist for a living uh, he went into computer programming, which is funny because the like computers and math and fields of that nature are very similar to music in certain ways. So he was able to like apply a lot of the like analytical aspects of his mind similarly. Like if you're reading a piece of classical music or reading a piece of code, I know it sounds like they're completely different, but it taps into whatever half of the brain, you know, in the same way. So. Interesting. I definitely wouldn't have thought of that, but it does apply very well. Um, so what kind of getting into punk bands and playing around and stuff like that, like I know some of the bands that you have eventually played in are more of the like metal hardcore kind of thing, but it seems like you kind of lean more toward a punk kind of aesthetic from what I've seen of your personal taste. So how did you kind of, where was the transition maybe of your own personal influences that went from maybe like a Misfits to, I'm assuming it was Metallica, because that kind of seems like the easiest transition. I Well, really, I I got into metal first. It oh. was my first love. But you are correct with the punk background, because in Connecticut in the mid-90s, when I was getting into this stuff, the scene that I kind of went into was this like crust punk grindcore scene that was really big in Connecticut at the time. We had bands like The Pissed, uh, State of Fear, Hail of Rage, React, uh, Deformed Conscience, all these bands. So when I was going to my first shows, they were at punk venues. So even though I was like the metalhead that grew up listening to thrash metal, like, you know, yeah, Metallica, Megadeth, you know, things of that nature. And then, but all my first shows were all like punk shows. And I started doing sound for a venue when I was pretty young, like 97 or something like that. I was like a sophomore in high school i started doing sound at a punk venue around here called the pit and i did sound for like the casualties and pig destroyer and anal cunt and all these crazy bands from the time period but it was like how, how i got into underground music was through punk even though i was a metalhead first it's really weird you mentioned the casualties i just saw their last original member quit the band really yeah oh, that's it's it's the yeah, last were... last one i mean I, when i did like I, I remember doing sound with them at this at this place. It's like such a clear memory because I thought it was such a big deal. But looking back <laughs> at like photos, there was like ten kids there, fifteen kids there. You know, those are some of the best shows, though. Those are pretty much always my favorite shows. I was actually just talking to a friend 
about how smaller shows, how much more they tend to resonate. And I was thinking back on some of the shows that I did with Misery Signals. And I was thinking back to, in specific, one of my favorite shows was in Trenton, New Jersey, at like the back of like like a restaurant or something like that <laughs> for the uh, Absent Light, like right around when we were doing Absent Light. And there was like 200 kids there. And that was as many kids as you could possibly fit in. But that show meant more to me and was more fun and connected with like the, the feeling of uh, that I used to have in my youth, you know, like the excitement, the energy, the companionship of hardcore punk that connected with it more than, you know, the shows that would have like 600 kids at them, even though right. those shows are obviously <laughs> really cool in their own right. And they have their own kinetic energy. There's something about the small intimate show that is like, that's where hardcore punk tells its story the best. Right. Um, well, I mean, yeah, you kind of actually jumped ahead before I even could ask you the question of how you got into production as a whole or even doing sound. Was that something that you were naturally leaning towards or were you wanting to like, just kind of like, I know some places like, you know, you go to a venue enough and you just kind of like are the, the kid that's always there. And then maybe like, you know, you ask a bunch of questions while a show's going and then, you know, maybe that dude's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be out of town for this one show. Can you like do this? That's, is it kind of like that's, a, yeah, that's pretty much exactly what happened I was <laughs> there i was probably like 15 or something and i kind of was figuring it out uh i was also figuring out recording around the same time because my dad used to record uh his own bands and he used to record them in the basement he had reel-to-reel tape machines which i still have in the studio oh wow and uh i started doing I just had these reel to reels and I started doing demos for my friends bands like right away. Like, Oh, I'm going to play guitar. Like six months later, I'm going to make a demo. And they sounded <laughs> terrible, but they were, do you still have those? Uh, I wish I still had you know, all on cassette tape, you know, all recorded on reel to reel or cassette tape and stuff. I probably have a couple kicking around. I'd love to listen back to them. <laughs> but I, start, I started doing that and I just continued to do that. I never considered, I never wanted to do recording as a career. Um, it, it wasn't on my mind at all. I was actually going, I went to college for uh, a dual major in mathematics and English. And after like two years of college, I, I was playing in this band um, with Honor at the time. We got a chance to do like a really cool tour. And I just like left in the middle of a semester and just never went back. Like, and, and uh, started recording shortly after that. Where something I've always found interesting because uh, kind of like a, an acquaintance friend of mine, Josh Schroeder, who works out of uh, Random Awesome Studios up in Bay City up here, uh, kind of a lot, very similar, like was in a band, was actually a screen printer and then just kind of like would do their own demo, the band's own demos uh, for the band Besieged that he was in. And then eventually when the band was done, just kind of segued into recording uh, and then now basically does stuff for like the color morale and things like that. But what's interesting is I don't really feel like anyone's really ever gone into production for the sheer fact that they love it and they wanted to go down that route. It was more out of necessity of like, I can't afford to go to a studio, so I'll figure out a way to track my own shit. And then people like it and go, hey, record me. Totally. I, I mean, I was always fascinated by it because I grew up around it. I was trying to, you know, I remember when I was like really young, I would make mixtapes for my <laughs> friend and I would like talk in between songs and pretend like the mixtape was like a radio show that I was doing. So like I was always messing around with recording. Um, and when I decided to make a, a full-time go of it, which is in 2004 now. So like um, 
when I decided to make a full-time go of it, it was partially because, yeah, I had just done an EP for a band that I was in at the time and it cost me like $5,000. And I was like, I just can't, I could never do a full length for this band. I could never afford doing a full length for this band unless I record it. And then also a lot of my friends were doing albums where they were paying a lot of money and they weren't sounding that great. They were working with engineers that didn't give a shit that they were just like the small footnote, you know, like, all right, I'm just going to make some money. Like you're in and out in a couple days, thanks for the album, good luck on your career. And they would spend like years touring on this thing that was recorded in like a week, you know, that's all they could afford and there's mistakes on it and all this stuff. So I kind of had it in my head that I was like, I should do a studio to make my own record, but I should do a studio so that all my friends can like actually record music and with somebody that just honestly gives a shit. Right. Like, like care about, if the song is cool, if the riff is cool, if the part's cool, if it sounds good, if there's a mistake, like, and that's kind of been the precedent that I set since starting the studio, like big or small band. Like I try to approach each one, like it is the most important record that I can make at that time for me. And that just came out of a reaction of a lot of people just cashing in on, uh, you know, Hey, you can record on a computer. So I'm going to get a computer and just charge these bands, whatever, not give a shit and pump out stuff they didn't care about crafting albums or releases or songs so much as it was just like easy money, you know, you, you can record on whatever. And, uh, I really, I really got into recording and really wanted to pursue it as a direct reaction. Right. What, uh, cause something that I find interesting and you, you had already said that you've been doing this for my math correct 13 years now. Um, just the the technology difference like because it didn't seem like necessarily that you probably had a master shitload of gear early on it was just very, probably very rudiment in the setup you had yeah so what I'm trying to figure out the best way to ask this what was the how did you keep how did you learn like i mean obviously if you're working with friends band they're gonna be a little more lenient on you know mistakes and maybe it not being the best product that you could put out but at what point do you kind of realize like, okay, I'm going to keep doing this and I, I, I'm having fun doing this and piecing together someone else's stuff. It was, uh, I mean, it was pretty, I, I got to say like, I am fortunate enough that my, my dad had some gear, you know, from recording himself and he thought the idea of doing a studio was really cool. So he did help like invest and did do some work in the studio when it was starting up. So I did have some stuff to work with, you know, he had been doing it for a number of years. Um, and yeah, it, it, the first day that I had the computer set up with Pro Tools and everything ready to go, first time I ever sat down at Pro Tools HD, I had a client here. <laughs> so like, <laughs> like I just got it together in time. It was this band, Signs of Hope, sold like you know melodic hardcore band from Connecticut. First record I did, and they were just here, and I I just got everything set up. Finally, everything came in, and I was just off to the races. And it, it was for me, it was full time at that point till now. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of first records that I did that sound really, really bad because I was like trying <laughs> to figure it out. Um, and, you know, I did, would discover things like, oh, man, I can edit this stuff. So I have like a period of like a couple years where like my records are way too edited sounding because I was like, holy shit, you can do this. This is great. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it's been a long process um, figuring it out because I, cause I am self-taught. I'm, I'm 
you know, primarily self-taught. Uh, I had a couple people that would come in and work here part-time that had experience that would help me out and show me certain things. But it, it was definitely a long learning curve for me. And I feel like I'm still learning, you know, like I think every record that I do sounds a little better than the last one or things like that. And, um, I don't think I'll ever get to the point where I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm good at this. I'm always like, <laughs> shit, I need to work on this. That's all I hear when I listen back to records I do. It's like, fuck, I could have done that better. But, uh, <laughs> it was, it was a slow learning process, but I have been full time since the first day. Like I had another job and I never, I just never went back to it. It was full time <laughs> day one. What, um, kind of going back to the band thing, how hard is it to juggle like, you know, you said you were in a band that was kind of hitting the road and so forth, but then you also have this this career basically at home that requires you to be home. It's not like you can kind of, you know, take it on the road with you and, and do it. Uh, so how hard was it to kind of balance the the pursuit of one passion for another? Well, I one thing I say um, when, when people ask me uh, about how to get into recording or like, you know, if they're like, hey, man, I really want to do this. I want to go to school for this or I want to do whatever. One of the best pieces of advice that I have for them is to be in a band that is active, that is touring, because um, it is hard to balance. But that's where you meet people. That's where like a lot of people do record with me because it's like, oh, hey, it's Greg from Misery Signals or Shai Halud or any of these bands, you know, and they're like, hey, you know, we want to work with that guy because of this or this record that he did or whatever. So I do think it's important if you're doing recording to be have your own band going to some extent, you know, like if you can't make your own music, how can you help inform people how to make decisions with their music? Right. But as far as balancing touring and stuff like that, I would take stuff on, on the laptop, you know, like I, 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 I take stuff on a laptop and I do all my edits when I'm on the road and stuff like that. I do all it, like it never stops. I work every day. <laughs> That's part of owning your own business is that, you're your own boss, which people are like, oh, free time. But in reality, it means no free time <laughs> at all. No. So, so I, I take it on the road and I try to balance out things. I also co-own the studio now with um, this guy, Chris Teddy, who's a very talented engineer. He plays in his own band. Uh, the world is a beautiful place and I am no longer afraid to die. Super long band name. title ever. <laughs> Longest band name, which, which when he was like joining that band right when they were starting pretty much. I used to always give him grief over the title. I was like, this title's ridiculous. But in the end, it actually, people remember it. They just call him like, oh, it's long band, long band name. You yeah. Know, yeah. But uh, anyway, just... so, sorry. So, so he, he tours and we kind of balance it out. Like I'll try to set up tours that I do around when he's got a record coming in or I'll set up records around when he goes on tour. So we kind of like balance the schedule together. That's interesting. Like, it's kind of nice to have someone to, to be able to lean on to help out and carry the load a little bit. Um, yeah, I not be anywhere <laughs> I, where I am today without him. He's like, you know, he, he started as an intern here, and then it's just a co-owner now. Like, he's a hardworking, dedicated, great friend that's made it possible. Um, you kind of spoke of your time in, in Shahilud, which that's a band that's pretty consistently on the road all the time. How did you like touring? I mean, you... I always feel like it's kind of interesting when someone's like in a band and they and they just try to do it like with a band that like with their friends and so forth. And I feel like after a while, there's that that plateau where maybe the people you're around just aren't willing to put go all in to, to get to that next level. And so either you have to restart all over again with a new band and find people who hopefully 
say they are all in and actually mean it, or in the case of a lot of times, take that next level where you know somebody through a tour or whatever, and it's like, hey, like, you know, we need a guitar player. Can you fill in for us or do you want to join or whatever? What's it like kind of going from that level to kind of getting to the next tier of like being in a, a recognized band and, and playing out where people actually know your songs and know the songs you're playing? Like, like you're saying, basically being in like smaller bands and then joining a bigger band like yeah. that? Yeah. Like- because, like, um, case in point, there's uh, this the new guitar, well, newer guitar player for Dance Gavin Dance, uh, Andrew Michael Wells, who has his own band, uh, Iadola, or Iadola, however you pronounce it. Um, but they're like, Iadola is like kind of on the cusp of like breaking really big, like, especially with this last record. But he's in a more established band and got the gig just due to like, I guess, playing a show with them way back in the day. They're like, hey, you're a good vocalist and you can play guitar. So, like, hey, like, do you want to play in the band? And help us out and he's been in the band for a while now like touring but it's kind of like I, i've kind of see it and i'm like man it's kind of got to be weird like you're so close to like doing your own like the thing that you started but then now you've started like you're in this other thing where you have success and it's like is the goal to kind of slowly balance again balancing it all out to where like you get both to work out or does it end up being the thing where it's like okay well this one's taking off and has a name all right i kind of gotta let that one drop and and, and kind of get the goal of like, you know, being the touring musician and, and being on good tours and making the money. Cause it's kind of the ultimate goal I would assume is to be able to play out and play music. For sure. Uh, yeah, that's actually been a, a very, that, that's a good question. It's like, it's been a very important part of my career is that I, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I had started the studio to record um, a full length for a band that I was doing at the time. Like I'd done an EP that cost a lot of money and everything. And then that full length, uh, it was this band called The Risk Taken, and that full length I was working on for like years around here, and like really working trying to make this, putting my all into this record, and then all of a sudden I got the chance to play in Halud, which I only played in for like not too long, like 2006 to 2007, something like that. But I produced and made the album Misanthropy Pure with them, which was the real exhausting experience um, <laughs> playing with them. Um, but ever since I did that, I never really went back to that record that I started the studio with, which is like my passion project, the whole reason I am even doing what I'm doing. And I've not, you know, cause I, I did Halud. And then when that fell through, I had a couple years of uh, filling in and helping some other bands. And then I basically got the call from, from Ryan for misery signals. So like, I never really made it back to my own material. And it's like, it, it is like my goal for like this year or the next year or so is to get back to writing my own stuff because it is fun. It, it, I mean, it's been a, it was an amazing experience playing in Shilud and playing in Misery Singles because I loved both those bands before being in those bands. Like Halud was my favorite band in high school and Misery Signals, you know, I, I'd, I'd always liked those guys. I um, was on one of their first tours when I was playing with Honor for the brief, you know, half a year or whatever that I played with that band. The reason I quit school was to go on tour. And I did a little tour with misery singles, like their first or second tour. Right. And, um, so playing with those guys has been amazing. And I will say that I've learned, especially, well, no, from both those bands, I I learned a lot. I learned a massive amount about how to approach music, how to play stuff, learning other people's material. I mean, that's like a humbling thing as a musician, (laughs) because you can play your own stuff and think you're doing fine and then learn somebody else's rhythms or, chord voicings and you're like shit i really need to practice (laughs) Um, so you know i i I got derailed from this whole reason i started the studio and 
I'm hoping to make it back to that soon. But it's been 13 years, you know, like 10, <laughs> 10 years, the Halud stuff. So it is hard balancing your own stuff. I think it is, it's great playing and making music in other bands, but I do feel like if you have the artistic drive to write your own material, you'll always want to do that. And that'll always in some way be a priority, you know, and you, and you can see that with stuff like, um, you know, one of my dear friends, Mike Moynihan, who plays in the band Hollow Earth. Mm -hmm. uh, he was also in Halud after me. He was a singer for a while and he left that to do Hollow Earth because that was his project. That's what he put his heart and soul into. And that's what he wanted to make. And I think, you know, he's happier doing that. He's like, he's doing exactly what he wants to be doing. And, 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 you know, and it, it, the band might've been smaller for a little while, but I think they're doing better now. And he's like making progress with that and and at the end of the day if you're a songwriter that's the happiest you can be to just be getting your songs out in front of people no for sure was uh i mean cause speaking to recording an album with both shy halud and misery signals you doing absent light in the uh record you had talked about for uh shy halud yeah what's it like writing for a band that's not your not your band uh and for those listening on the audio i did air quotes there um, cause I mean, at that point you have to adapt someone else's writing style within reason, uh, while still kind of adding your thing, but not totally alienating the sound that had come before you. And you've done that at least twice now. So I, I have always wondered like, how hard is it to come into something like that and figure out like where you fit in, in the writing process? It's, it's a tricky thing. I mean, a lot of the influences that I have that I was talking about, like the kind of more extreme music stuff that I grew up with, the the kind of crustier, grindier, black metal-y uh, stuff that I was into in the 90s and stuff like that, it'll creep into when I'm writing something for, like, Misery Signals. But I do have to uh, uh, make sound. In particular, more than the Halud stuff, because a lot of the Halud stuff came together through their guitarist, Matt Fox. He's very hands-on and writes most of the stuff. But with Misery Signals... The, the coolest thing about being a part of that band was that Ryan brought me in as like an equal right away. So it was like, we're going to write, you write half the songs, I write half the songs, you know, you write half the, or probably a little less than half the lyrics or whatever. And he's going to write it. Like we, we split it like right away. And um, yeah, I, what I had to do was just listen through the records and soak in the records, which I was already a fan of, but I had to really listen to it and see what I thought I could, you know, add and what I thought I could capture of what they did. You know, it, it is definitely a challenge. I think learning the older songs helps because you're like, oh, you use this chord a lot. Well, I'm going to use this chord and it'll sound like the failsafe or something like that. Right. Yeah. That's so something as a, specifics, a, but... yeah, I was going to say that's something as a, as a random like person who likes playing guitar. And when you get into a band and you start figuring out like, for instance, like System of a Down, like if I, there was ever a new song I wanted to learn, it's like, okay, I know Darren likes to write a chorus progression in the using these like five or six chords in yeah. some different progression one way or the other. But when you have that root down or the bass down to kind of figure it out, it's it's interesting to see. And then I noticed like when I would start trying to jam some ideas out, it's like, oh, that sounds like, and it's like, oh, well, no shit, because you've just been jamming like, you know, this band their discography for a while and all of a sudden now like they're in your headspace so when you're writing of course you're going to pick up on these little like accents or whatever but... absolutely i think that that's an important thing to listen to it also um i think what made the, it a little easier for me or at least 
was a skill set that I was able to bring to that was being a, a full time uh, record producer. Uh, so as, as, so with that in mind, I'm very hands on with a lot of projects like the conveyor record. You know, they were kind of in between guitarists when they came in on that. So I ended up writing some material for that, playing a lot of the guitar parts on that. I, I had to become uh, I had to become what they needed to get that record done. And that happens with a lot of albums because recordings intense bands are always losing members or doing whatever. Or even if the band is intact, I want to get into the songwriting with them. I want to get in like, oh, why are you making this decision here? Maybe we should do this or let's try this thing out. So I had experience coming in and analyzing what other people are doing and trying to modify or picking up on their traits. And I think that that skill set is what helped me in writing those records. Not saying it wasn't really challenging. And for Misery Singles, the first, I don't even know, like three or four songs I wrote for that album, you know, I, I was like, oh, this is not going to work, you know, like, like, like I, I threw them out and then had to keep doing it till like I started to, you know, I, I think it started to get the feel right, you know, and um, yeah, it's definitely a challenge. That's, that's funny because I haven't actively thought about that. That's like a good question, but that is like a challenging thing. And, and like I said, it happens with production all the time too, where you have to just get into the mindset of the band. And I will say just a quick thing, one of the best ways to do that and I did that with Misery Signals, and I do that with every band that I produce, is I listen to the records that influence them. Not just what they did, but I have discussions with the band, like, you know, when I, when we were getting ready to write uh, Absent Light, I was like, okay, Ryan, what were you listening to when you wrote Malice? You're listening to Cave-In, you're listening to Hum, you're listening to these things. And then I would listen to those records. Instead of trying to rip off the band's previous material instead of like, Hey, this riff is like something on malice, but a little different. I, I tried to go back to the source of what inspired them when they were writing malice. And then I listened to those records and tried to do my own versions of those kind of riffs first. Like that was the primary discussion on how to approach it. So something I think I had seen you say somewhere, I don't know exactly where at this point, but you kind of had mentioned doing your due diligence on on going back, like, for example, Misery Signals or even Conveyor and listening to other the records they've already done and then even to the point of listening to their influences. So with a band like Misery Signals where you're coming in and kind of for the first time, like having the band self-produce the record, you're going back through and listening to a pretty raw sounding record in Malice that was done, if I'm not mistaken, by uh, Devin Townsend. Yep. And then you go to Mirrors, which I don't remember who recorded Mirrors off the top of my head, but it has its own completely different sound that kind of, to me, became a little bit more of what they were doing on Malice, refined and kind of honed. But then you get to Controller, and I feel like that, which is, that's my favorite record, I think, production-wise. It just sounds, it just sounds huge. And I know, and it's Devin Townsend, but, and it's, and I think it's a difference of, kind of like you were saying earlier, of... Malice came out and maybe it was a band that didn't have a whole lot of money because they're a new signed band, they're a newer band. And so it's kind of a, this is the best we could do with the money we had and the time we had to record it. Whereas I wonder if they would have had the money and the time if maybe Malice wouldn't have sounded more like Controller since Devin did both. Or yeah, how I, I, I actually think, I actually think it's not necessarily was an issue of budget so much as it was uh, technolo technology wasn't there yet. Okay. On Mal like like okay, so like it's like they, they did spend time recording it, but I think 
you know, 2004, they did that in 2004, people are just figuring, I mean, Pro Tools have been around, but digital recording is like still cutting its teeth. And people are like, you got guys like Adam D like figuring out like, oh, I can really get these like triggers sounding good with Kill Switch or I can get these, you know, I remember when Poison the Well Opposite of December came out and they had the triggered kick drum and you were like, holy crap, you can hear the bass drum on this record. <laughs> like 2004 is only a few years after that. So there, right. so, so Devin Townsend is a brilliant producer um, and I do think that they spent a while, I think they did spend like weeks, maybe even the same amount of time or, or a similar amount of time on that. But technology itself you know, if you listen to Devin Townsend's records from that time period, they don't sound nearly as good as they did just a few years later because the technology for digital recording improved so much so rapidly. What I was trying to remember, too, was if because I know at that point and I don't remember when the Alice of Palace's Burn record came out, but obviously Devin did that one, too. But there's not really a whole lot of similarities between the two records as far as like the same dude did it. And I want to say they were in, released in the same year. Were pretty close yeah i also well i'll say that one thing about um devin who I, i've never met but i respect a lot is that he himself is an artist he's not just a uh, producer so a lot of his records do sound different between multiple records because he is trying to make art he's trying to capture a vibe in a feel more than he is dial in a setting right if that makes sense. so um you know, there's a degree of that. I, I, I do think that the band was, you know, tighter when they were going into Controller. They had tour, you know, they they were at a point leading into Controller where they were playing 300 shows a year. That's a right. lot. Yeah. So they're going to be tighter. They're going to sound better naturally. You yeah. Know? But no, I was going to say with, with that, though, like when you're going back and look at some of these, like, producers or even to the effect of, like, maybe some of these bands that you're you're delving back into the bands that they're into and maybe stumbling across like, you know, like a Ross Robinson or like a Terry date, or I, I mean, inevitably I feel like with bands and the members being around my ages, like thirties, you know, maybe late twenties, those are the names that are going to come up regardless. Yeah. That, have you found little things that you've noticed like through studying some of these, these other like big name producers that had their like, f like thumbprint on that's like a specific genre, like, you know, Terry Dayton, uh, Ross Robinson were had their hands like on metal and new metal for like a yeah. solid like almost twenty years there, and then you're starting to get people you know like Devin Townsend in the late early two thousands and so forth, and a handful of people like that, like uh, Garth Richardson and stuff like that. You know, you're getting a lot of and Adam D as you mentioned that are kind of putting their own stamp like on a specific genre. Like, have you noticed like little nuances that kind of like going back and listening to these things that like you're like holy shit i can't believe i never noticed that until like, i went back to listen to something in preparation for a record i'm working on oh for sure uh one of the things that i do occasionally when i am listening to those older records is i'll listen to them on the studio monitors so i'll listen to them in here and when you listen to something on studio monitors uh you know as a producer you're like holy crap they panned that thing there or <laughs> they did like things that you would not think of that you just didn't perceive especially on those records when you're you know when you're younger like a uh you know i really liked the band sepultura when i was younger and and roots you know is basically one of the early new metal records right um mm -hmm. and listening back to that or something like that production wise there's so much cool stuff that just like you know you're young you're like oh this is kind of like just heavy and whatever and like <laughs> that's not 
that, that's probably not even in my top five favorite Sepultura records, but I can appreciate the production on it a lot. And um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of tricks. Uh, and, and there's things that I think sound a lot better than you remember. Uh, the guy who we have mix, Absent Light, uh, Steve Evans. Yeah. Uh, I listened back through Steve Evans' catalog. You know, he did Turmoil, The Process of, one of my favorite hardcore records. He did the Buried Alive, uh, Death Your Perfect World. He did uh, Calculating Infinity. He, he, you know, he did all the Snapcase. He did all these records that sounded phenomenal. And we were when we were looking for a mixing engineer for that, we were listening back. And we didn't know who we wanted to mix the record. I, I knew that I didn't want to do it because I was too involved in the project. And I was like, this will just be a nightmare that never ends. <laughs> so... We and we were listening to all these influences, and we were like, "Shit, man, that Turmoil record still sounds awesome." So we we're just like, "What if we reached out to Steve Evans, who works with Ross Robinson on projects now and stuff like that?" But we reached out to him because of going back and exactly as you said, going back and noticing, like, "Damn, this dude has sounded amazing for decades." The thing that's interesting to to me about Evans being a fan, due to what he's done with like Static Lullaby and Every Time I Die and even worked with uh, my friend's band, uh, Wilson, because I sent a drunken tweet one night <laughs> to him. Um, but I mean, like, he's, he's worked with The Cure, which, I mean, to me, it's like you want to talk about what I feel like a, a production or producer's dream would be working with The Cure because you get to do so much with, like, layering and just oh, so yeah. much shit that it's like, you know, I feel like if you're a producer and or a mixer, like, probably getting a Cure record you're even getting to work on, you're probably just, like, wetting your pants from excitement of just that or you're gonna like shit your pants out of sheer terror of like how the fuck do i do this and not make it sound terrible but yeah that to me i think that him working with the cure is probably and a handful of bands like that though i think shows like how well versed he is and what he does as far as being a producer absolutely he's he's one of the best it was um kind of stressful working with him and i think some of that was just because of how particular i was and in his style of mixing is different than my style of mixing i mean he's definitely better has a better grasp on the everything than i i'm not saying i'm doing anything better but it's like i set up the record differently uh, production wise and i think i do think that the mix of absent light is cool but i was envisioning something a little different but i still had a great time working with him you know overall he's just so old school analog entire mix on a board and no two songs on that record sound the same because he like resets all the settings every song and then just redoes the next song which is like completely different uh than it is for me you know who's like in the computer for a lot of the mix but uh interesting I always wondered if uh, with when people like that work together, they end up like bashing heads more like initially just because it's like you have an idea of what you want, but like they have an idea of what it should be. And then so like you're just kind of fighting for a little bit until yeah, it's like I, done. I, I think uh, there was some tense moments, but not he, he was awesome. I think I was just like stressed out. We, it took us three months to track that record. I was like so exhausted and um you know, probably overly opinionated on certain things. And I uh, should have relaxed on some stuff for sure. But like, he's a champ. I mean, that guy's, you know, made so many records for so many years that he's certainly, I'm sure, dealt with people that were worse than me and whatever. And, and, and we got along fine. We were happy with the ending result. Absolutely. Um, but there, there was definitely like a old school and new school, you know, 
we're coming at it from different points because I, I remember talking to him and being like well the bass drum sounds awesome in this one song can we make the bass drum sound like that in this other song and he's like he's like that's not really what i do i i just ground up feel it for every, you know he starts with like things in the general area but he like feels every song differently and in my mind like i was like trying to set up the record to have a consistent sound and then let the parts be what was different like this part it's clean but this part's heavy but i want this part that's heavy to have the same drum sound as the heavy part in this other song you know right. we just have different approaches but it it made me learn like i learned a lot through doing that and i apply some of the things i've learned from him to what i do now something and this may be my lack of being in your end of everything but just from a, a fan's perspective, it was something I've kind of wondered. So with with the, the last Music Signals record that you worked on, and I kind of hate harping on this, but like it's it's a great launching point for a lot of different parallels of questions that I have. Sure. So with that record, it was crowdfunded. And granted, you were in the band, so I mean, maybe the, the pressure of what I'll bring up is, is on it twofold. But do you feel that when there's a record that's been crowdfunded do you feel there's an added pressure between the band and even you as the producer to make it the i shouldn't say the best that it should be because it always should be the best that it should be but when i feel like a fan is funding the record there's added pressure for the product to be well received because it's not like some label just handed you a shitload of money and it's like oh we'll see we'll market it whatever and if it fucking works it works like there's yeah. so much more pressure i would feel like if a, if people were giving me their hard-earned money and being like we believe in you and we love you so much like here here's money fucking make this record that if they go like man this record sucks it's like oh shit <laughs> yeah yeah well i you know going into it at first i was really hesitant and skeptical about crowdfunding the album in general because often crowdfunding comes across as really corny to me mm -hmm. and like bands are like you know for two thousand dollars you can hang out with us and that's like probably the farthest thing from punk rock you yeah. know from where i came from that you could possibly do as a band so i was hesitant to it and um but you know the guys liked the idea uh ryan had a really good vision for it and we it, what was important to me was that we kind of ran it as uh more or less a pre-order um, you know, you, you basically, you would, you know, uh, donate or whatever, or pledge the amount of money that it would cost to get the record. And then you'd get the record. It wasn't like, Hey, we need, you know, we're begging you for money. It was a way for us to sell the record before we made it so that we could make it and cut out the middleman. Um, cause I, I do really hate when bands are like, Hey, go, you know, we need 500 bucks to fix our van. We're going to set up a GoFundMe. It's like, just come on dude like sell shirts or like put a sale on your merch online or something like that right. so it was important for me and, and a lot of people did react to it like oh what the hell is wrong with these guys they're begging for money but i i think that that criticism is just wrong because we just we just our perks that we put down were just buying the album so the reason i mention that is because people i don't know if it changed the um pressure on it because people invest their money in it either way. They either invest it ahead of time like that, or they're going to buy the album, you know, maybe buy the album. You don't want to let them down, even if a label did give you money and they go and spend $20 on a vinyl and then the record sucks and you just phoned it in and you're like, thanks for the, you know, royalties I'll never see or something in peace, right. you know. Um, but I will say that there was a lot of anticipation already. I, you know, it was a stressful thing, but I felt excited about it. 
from yeah the crowdfunding adds a little but i still treat every album with that you know i i have like a great uh respect and reverence for like trying to add a an album to a band that i looked up to to misery singles you know to their catalog and not just fuck it up for myself as a fan right know? no like i said i, I kind of going into it with that question like i was like i know this is kind of a stupid question because i i know the answer but or at least I feel like I would know the answer, but on the flip side of it, it's like maybe it does add more pressure than a normal recording process just because of the I environment. Mean, it definitely does a little. I think some of the bigger like uh, tiers of things that people could do, like some of them were like having um, kids. It wasn't too much money, but like kids could come and do like the, the – group vocals on the record and stuff like that and when and they would come to my studio here and i try to give them like the best time and just hang out and like talk and i'm still friends with a lot of those people that came to that to this day like just straight up actively friends with them follow each other on instagram all this kind of stuff because like i just didn't want to be on the you know the pedestal or anything like that so there was like pressure just to be like cool like if people put in their money like make sure that they got their money's worth for the different perks beyond even the album. Just like make sure everything was a cool experience and, you know, tried to, with that album, we'd really tried to, you know, I tried to combine, at least from my perspective, I tried to combine the three records beforehand, like aspects I liked of each record beforehand so that the, hopefully the fans, you know, uh, of the band or people that like the band still thought it was cool and not just like a la lazy attempt. Kind of uh, shifting a little bit from the the record and producing per se, I noticed, excuse me, I noticed recently that uh, you are hosting a comedy night. At the studio, yeah. At the studio. And something, when you posted the initial uh, idea or that it was going to be happening, your thought was that you wanted to kind of turn the studio into a, like an alternative space for events, I guess, if I understood it correctly. Yeah, basically, the, the studio is pretty small. It's not, I don't have the biggest live room, but I can fit, you know, 20, 30 people in there to just, like, come out for something like this. The uh, the comedy night kind of came out really randomly um, from one of my best friends, uh, Corey Straffolino, who used to play with me in that band that made the EP all those years ago that I talked about, The Risk Taken. Um, Corey's gone on to play in a number of bands. He's in... Uh, law dispute currently but he's also been in like defeat <laughs> life in your way and all these things and i was talking to him and he was telling me about how he was just doing comedy starting the moonlight as a comedian when he's not on tour with law dispute and i was like man i would love to see you do that and he's like yeah i'd love to do one in connecticut and have all our friends come out and we we're just kind of like wait a second we can do this at the studio you know um and it's just, it just kind of came out at random and he's he's coming out with uh friend of ours luke schwartz who uh again i recorded here used to play in make to amend and he is in tiger's draw now and, and they're like doing like a little comedy tour the two of them together but the the kind of the launching point is just doing it in the studio and we're gonna record it and see what happens just have some friends over and hopefully have a cool night is there plans to if it goes well to kind of maybe do this sporadically like for other people maybe that you don't don't know like other Someone, like obviously I would assume it'd have to be someone that you would want to, to work with in that capacity, but uh, is that yeah. kind of a goal, like to kind of make it a weird alternative space uh, for, yeah. for something cool? So 
I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think of the studio. This is going to sound like some, you know, I don't know, like hippie bullshit or something like that. But like the studio to me, like I've always felt thankful to the people that have recorded here, and I've always tried to bond. You know, I've always like bonded with the bands. Like most of the bands I record here end up like my best friends, and they're they're always there for me. And they're I love to see them, and I, that, that's what I always say. People are like, "How's recording?" It's like I work with my best friends every day. It's amazing. Um, but all these friends of mine, you know, so many of them have all these other talents and things that they do. And if I have the means or ability to support them or to be a part of it or to witness it or to encourage them, I will try to do it. So like, as far as friends do in comedy, that's such a wild, <laughs> cool thing. And, and, you know, he, he, Corey would tell me about how it's like, he's like, oh, the, the, comedy circuits like diy hardcore punk you just go and you don't get paid for most of your shows and you get like five minutes and that's it and i love the um i don't know i i'm just i love the diy spirit of just going out and doing things like that um mm -hmm. you know uh, you you know, i mean you talk to matt mix on here I, I love that he's going out and doing filmmaking and mm -hmm. uh, i have friends that are authors now and friends that are comedians now and stuff and if there's any way that i can support that and i have the means to do it then I'm all for it. Whether it's like, I'd even do shows here, small shows. I mean, <laughs> when people come and have fun like that, the idea of that is just, that's exciting to me. That's like a, uh, just a fun time. Keeps it, keeps it small and compact and intimate. Like what we we're talking about earlier, how some of those smaller shows, those smaller things can be the most impactful. I think the, uh, first time I saw something like that, where you could put it like in a, in a studio kind of setting and have a show, uh, between comeback kid and, uh, the misery signals, rain city sessions. It's like, holy shit, that looks awesome. Like, it sounds great, obviously, because it's in a studio, but then you put in, like, you know, however many fucking people you can pack in there and then just have a show, but it's also in a studio. I was like, man, that's pretty rad. And Yeah. It's... I, I was I, when, when I saw that, I was like, that was something that I wanted to do, like, years ago, and I recorded a set similarly to here that just never came out for that band, Make, Do, and Mend. Mm -hmm. And I, when I saw them, when, when, when Misery Singles, when I was talking to Ryan, they were like, oh, we're going to do this thing in the studio. I was like, fuck, that's... They kind of beat me to the punch. I wanted to do that. I love the idea of that, though. That's a super cool thing. And, and it, it, to me, it's... I, I do love Audio Tree and things like that, but having the audience, like... Yeah. Taking hardcore punk away from the audience is like taking half the experience away. So having some kind of audience there to sing along or to just be a part of it is like more true to like yeah. the vibe and the yeah. yeah. I was gonna say like because uh, the band I was talking about earlier, Wilson, they did between them and Let Live. I think are the only two bands I can think of that I've seen do their audio tree performance. And it was pretty on par with their actual live show because, like, usually the, both front men are just kind of outrageous between Jason and, and Chad, like, both kind of going nuts. Like, Chad literally had to take his headphones and duct tape, like, it to his head because he was, like, moving around so much. Like, it just wouldn't fucking That's stay cool. on. Um, so, I mean, it is kind of interesting to see again like i keep calling them kind of alternative spaces but I, I feel like that's from you know the the alternative comedy scene from the mid 90s or so that was kind of coming around and people yeah. playing in like coffee houses and you know random places that it's it's akin to you know growing up in hardcore and in metal like seeing a lot of places places like i just saw like a couple of bands are playing a grocery store like that seems to be yeah. a, a new trend <laughs> one of those uh one of the bands that was on that post uh, Lesser Men is a band that we just finished a record for. They, they're on their record release tour. Okay. And when I saw when I saw that, I was like, "Hell yeah!" Fuck. <laughs> you know, it's like a... I've done shows like that. I played shows in 
all sorts of little, you know, coffee shops for sure. Some of my favorite shows are in these little like weird restaurants and <laughs> on, um, actually one of the best shows that I was ever able to do with Misery Singles was a co-headlining Misery Singles Bad Rabbits show oh, yeah. at, at a coffee house in uh, Boise, Idaho, yeah. where Ryan lives. And like, that was the most fun. And it was just a, yeah, it's a coffee shop, but it was packed with kids and it was, and Bad Rabbits are incredible. They're, yeah. you know, they fantastic so it was a super cool show are you being out out on the east coast are you familiar with uh i can't remember the, the drummer's name but his uh other band irrepress no i don't know that <sighs> should check that band out yeah i saw them yeah uh it's basically like an instrumental band but they go from like kind of ethereal like lots of delayed kind of guitars and then slowly build it up and then it kind of gets heavy and has a groove to it uh, a friend of mine ended up having them at a, our house with a, or at a different at their house, and it was like them and uh, not Glassfield, camera Battlefields, um, and a handful of other bands. But it was like everything from like kind of dirty crust punk metal shit to like this kind of like shoegaze, whatever. And I just remember it was like these like five dudes and they had like a keyboard player and shit and they had like their own little like light rig they set on the floor and they just turned off all the lights and had this like thing going. And I don't remember if it was like programmed or anything and there's cool. no microphones. So like at one point, like there's like a vocal s kind of thing and all five dudes like from around the room just kind of all chant this thing. And it was just like, this is the most badass thing I've ever fucking seen. And I like yeah, walked I, away being a huge fan. Like I, I love but, stuff like that. I, I kind of miss when... Um you know used to or i mean you can still do it you go to shows and you see these bands that are not like trying to just groom themselves for warp tour they're just doing genuinely weird shit i love seeing the genuinely <laughs> weird punk like what the hell are these guys i've never seen anything like this you know, like this a guy with an acoustic guitar screaming with like some light show behind him like <laughs> it's ridiculous but it's it's fun you know it's yeah it's, uh, yeah um it's exciting i so we kind of spoke on that, and I'll kind of come back to the last few questions, music-based, but the other thing, too, upon following you for a while on, on various social networking that uh, was something that I was like, I love all the shit this dude posts, is uh, your love of horror movies. And before we uh, get going too far, hold on, i got to find it real quick. Um, let's see if you can actually see this. Unplug myself from here. Ugh. Oh, nice, nice. That's, uh, that's um the show I. Wife, um, we ended up doing some screen printed posters and such, but the inspiration was obviously Phantasm, which is one of my favorite horror movies. Yeah. Uh, same for sure. I love that movie. It's uh, it's definitely one of those things where. I had a love for like older horror movies and I feel like a lot of people don't like, I mean, I say the text earlier of they're remaking flatliners and it's not really a horror movie, but it's definitely like, it was a, a scary movie when I was a kid to me. Yeah. Sure. For and sure. with, uh, bacon and God, it had, it had like everybody. Like if you were like the a star of the like late eighties, early nineties, it had everybody. Um, but I feel like I just went back like the one night they were doing the Phantasm in 4K that uh, was it J.J. Abrams? Was it J.J. Abrams that redid it or remastered it? Abrams, yeah. 
Yep. Yeah, so we went to the theater to go see it, like a friend of mine and his wife and I, and we both had hyped it up. Like, now, granted, when we got out of the movie, he was like, "God, that was awful!" Like, I don't remember it being so bad. I was like, "Have you not seen Phantasm in like the last ten, fifteen years since you got older?" He goes, "No," and I was like, "Oh man, I've I've watched it enough to know that it's like this movie's not the greatest looking, and it really makes no fucking sense." And I go, "But it's it's just a fucking classic." Like. One of my other favorite, like, shitty B-horror movies is uh, Motel Hell. Yep. Just have an affinity for the the old classics that I don't feel like... I feel like... Like, I know it's a big thing, and I know it's a a big genre that people are into, like, being horror and classic horror movies and such. But I notice that you have more of the affinity for... I I guess they're known as, like, the, the classic Universal monsters, it seems. I do love the Universal Monster stuff, and I also, I mean, I really love the late 70s and into the 80s horror stuff as well. Um, And and the reason I love that time period so much and the Universal Monster stuff from, like, the 30s and 40s is because horror is a really interesting genre. When the movie's bad, it's still fun. But when the movie's good, (laughs) it's enjoyable. And, and, And it's not really like that for a lot of other genres i mean if you watch a bad drama you're bored you're gonna fall asleep you know or a bad comedy bad bad comedy is painful yeah but bad (laughs) horror is comedy gold because it's so extreme so that's one of the reasons i was drawn to the genre it's a it's a fun genre to be into because if you you know you'd be hard pressed to find movies in the 80s that don't have some fun or enjoyment value even when they're just the shittiest now speaking of horror i'd be remiss if i didn't bring up the fact that you went and saw john williams in concert literally john, in con- or john, john, john carpenter i'm sorry yeah everyone's been on this i blame uh i kept seeing a bunch of star wars shit today at the uh, theater and i was like aren't isn't aren't those movies done for a while now like the next one's not coming out till like next year but so I've had like Star Wars on the brain because I'm like, God, how many fucking movies does? I'm not a Star Wars fan, clearly. <laughs> but, I remember you saying that during Mixon's podcast. I was like, oh, yeah. interesting. I, it's a, uh, it's like on the podcast I did with, uh, fuck, I don't remember who it was off the top of my head, but oh, it was uh, Josh uh, Killswitch's uh, production manager, and so he and I were talking, and like right away we're like. It's like, you know who else I don't fucking like? And I think the, like our overrated is like the fucking Rolling or, uh, Led Zeppelin. And I was like, oh my God, me too. I don't get it. And then it's like, you know, he's like, oh, and the Beatles. And I was like, fuck, I think we just became best friends. Because like I say this shit all the time and everyone looks at me like I'm like blaspheming and shit like that. But, you know, same with, uh, I mean, between like a lot of the composers of movies and, and John Carpenter kind of bringing it back. Horror movies have really iconic soundtracks and i feel like that's maybe something that's kind of gone like i was watching the movie life last night the uh ryan reynolds and jake gyllenhaal movie which was more or less like a a pseudo wannabe reimagining of alien but not done nearly as well i haven't Um, seen it yeah that's why i didn't really say too much um it's worth watching for sure uh it's got some interesting ideas but as a whole it's pretty predictable all the way through um but when there were moments kind of happening, I was like, you know, the thing that I'm missing is like, you know, that classic horror soundtrack that I, you know, that, you know, John Carpenter and, and you know, some of these people put the, their stamp on these movies or even to the effect of like, if, you know, you want to look at something like Lost Boys, it didn't necessarily have a, 
the most memorable original score, but the music that they chose to have in it was very memorable for those specific scenes that oh, songs yeah. are in. So it's it's one of those things that I had kind of wondered too, knowing, you know, obviously you being a producer and loving music as a whole and being into horror, like how much have you realized how much maybe like the, the production and, and the scoring of movies has influenced you? Oh my God. Honestly, uh, I would say that film scores above everything else are my biggest influence for music writing. My, my actual biggest influence when I, outside of, you know, I was saying I'd listen to bands like catalog or listen to the stuff that influenced them. Uh, for me, when I'm trying to get melodic ideas, I listen to film scores almost all the time. It's like the, and I think you can probably see some elements of that in music that I do, especially absent light. We have the uh, string ensemble play throughout <laughs> it. That comes from my love for film scores and want to do that. So it's a huge influence on me. The uh, kind of moody nature the thing for me about film scores and uh, soundtracks and stuff like that, film scores are designed to create an emotional response. Mm -hmm. you know, they're music designed to make you sad when a character is sad or to make you nervous or anxious when things are intense. And people forget that about like rock or whatever. They'll just be like, this part's cool. And as a producer, I, I have to, you know, I talk to people all the time. It's like, yes, but does this make you feel anything? Technically, that part is cool, but do you feel anything? You know, the same way that I, you know, there's certain like progressive metal bands that I just don't really get into, a band like Dream Theater or something like that, where they're like technically super proficient. I can't play a single riff that they have. Right. But does, but does it make me feel anything? Um, not often. So the big thing for me with listening to film scores is like, yes, like this note movement strikes a chord with me. This this uh, layer or this feel or this atmospheric choice makes me feel something. How can I use that to get my audience to, feel, to, to garner an emotional response from them? So it is a huge influence on me. John Carpenter, his films and his scores for those films, not only being you know the director and writer, but being the guy who wrote those scores is a huge, huge influence on me. I, I listen to... Um, you know, the score for The Thing or Halloween or uh, Escape from New York. I listen to those frequently and draw inspiration from them frequently. And, and as you're saying, as far as it changing, I still think that there are guys out there doing film scores now that are amazing. I mean, Hans Zimmer is one yeah. of the all-time greats, you know, and uh, there are people out there doing fantastic work. But there is also some stuff that does, uh, I think Hans Zimmer came in, and he does all these grand swelling of strings and horns. And then there's all these like Hans Zimmer lights out there. Right. You know, like they try to do the same thing. So like a lot of film scores now are starting to all be like swell based. Whereas like, you know, we think back to when we're younger, you think, you know, the Indiana Jones theme, you know, the Batman theme, you know, the Star Wars theme. But these newer movies, you can't hum the theme because it's like, oh, the theme is, you know, it's like a, just a single note swell. And uh, we are missing, you know, it's still cool, but we are, it, it has changed from creating memorable, specifically memorable themes for characters to just more pad oriented right. for film scores. Well, what's interesting is I just had, I don't remember what podcast I was listening to, and it might have been even the Jericho one when he was talking about uh, various like old school, like 60s, 70s wrestling and stuff like that. Someone was bringing up 
and I, I, I should have remembered. I actually was going to send you an email and be like, remind me to bring up this to trigger the actual thought. But I had recently was trying to think of when I knew I was going to ask you about the, the horror movies and the and composers and stuff that I was like, you know, the last theme to something I can really think of that people like the average person would know, like everyone knows Jaws, like, dun, dun, dun. like, you know, everyone knows that. The last one I could really think of that, like, if in the last, like, 10, 15, 20 years would have been, like, Austin Powers. But yeah, I had recently pretty- learned that that is actually a song that had existed from already way before. And I thought it was music composed for that. And so when I found that, I was like, holy shit. So even that isn't yeah, technically, like, made for that. Like, it's not. Uh, but then even speaking to the Jaws, like, we were at... We were looking for a record store while we were in Boston uh, yesterday, and we ended up, <laughs> my wife looked up, uh, found a Berkeley Music, and it didn't click in my head initially when she was like, oh, there's a Berkeley College or Berkeley Music store over here. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And then when we started walking, I was like, no, I think this is for Berkeley College of Music. It's a music store for the college, not a music store. So we walked yeah. in, and we, I came, found to be that I was correct with that, that assumption. But what was interesting is it had some art prints in there one of which spurned a great joke, uh, which was it was just a, a guitar, and then it just said, I like to play. And I sent a text to my friend that was like, I feel like this should be a symbol with a, uh, a uh, drumstick from Wayne's World after Wayne, uh, yeah. or Garth after he rips that drum solo, and then he's like, thanks, I like to play. Um, <laughs> which my friend was like, I'm at work dying laughing, and no one knows why, so thanks for that. Uh, the other was, it was a photo of a shark and underneath, underwater, with a with an orchestra there was no music notes no nothing just that was what it was and i was like i like the subtle nod to that music made this this mythical creature like be larger than life 100 percent. i mean the music is so people have talked about it at length you know but like jaws you know they couldn't show mm-hmm. the shark they didn't have the effects the the mechanical shark that they had i think bruce they, bruce yeah was just always, you know, it didn't work. So they're like, all right, well, how about these couple piano notes can kind of let you know that the shark's there, even though we're going to be from the shark's perspective like that. Yeah. What has been your favorite horror movie recently that's come out? Well, I got to say for recently, something that I saw, um, The Witch. I did like The Witch. I know a lot of my friends are kind of split on that film. But to me, uh, that just struck like a Kubrick kind of feel to me. It felt like almost like the shining in the woods. So I don't know if you, did you see the witch at all? Did you get a chance to, I I haven't actually, there's a lot of those movies that based on the trailer and, and talking with Nixon, he's like, I don't watch trailers cause you know, it spoils shit, but it's like half the time I'm like, I need to know like what the fuck I'm going into though too. <laughs> so no, I haven't seen it cause it didn't really catch me because i was like i don't still really know what this is about it's it's like a lot of my friends like it's slow and boring but i I liked it it was like a slow burn uh just creepy film with dark imagery it felt like um an older film in a way that it wasn't like here it is in your face all the time you're just it's tension and paranoia which is like kind of goes back to my favorite horror film of all time which is john carver's the thing which just feeds off of the tension and the paranoia and the feeling of like who isolation. Is it? Yeah. And, and the witch kind of captures a little of that. I'm not saying it's the greatest you know, <laughs> movie of all time, but as a fan of horror, I'm not, 
as in love with horror in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. There are definitely films that are amazing, but um, I'm not as in love with this era of horror as I am late 70s, early 80s, or 30s and 40s horror. I think the uh, one of the last handful of movies that I've seen, and this still is an older movie, I think it's at this point at least over a decade old, old was uh, High Tension. I've actually never seen that. I know, it's, I know, and it's classic. It's so fucking great until their big, like, plot twist at the end, and you're just like, fuck, man, like, you've had an, like... Oh, it's just a, kind of a letdown. It's a great movie, and I still watch it. I still rec- highly recommend it to so many people. Yeah, but... I, I, I'm like fucking up having not seen that. I, I started it once a long time ago, and I something happened. I got distracted, and I just for whatever reason never went back to it. The I other need one, to. I was gonna say the other one too recently, and I'm starting to Netflix will start being my friend again because they have all these like European and Italian like horror movies and shit, which I I think I feel like they're kind of getting back to more of that like late 80s you know kind of like the, the sweet spot of horror and they're kind of doing that with like a slightly modern twist i ended up catching a movie while we were in uh denver right before we left uh someone had netflix on it like a dive bar we were at and this movie was called and i'm probably gonna mispronounce the name for sure it was called a uh, bus to Passane or uh, train to Passane basan that yeah, movie now granted cool. I didn't get to see it with the audio. I only could read the subtitles, which is whatever. Because, I mean, I feel like half the time when you're watching a movie like that and you can't understand the language, you kind of don't need the audio, really. But watching the movie, I was like, this movie's fucking crazy. And it just yeah, takes I, that, I like, like that one. it was really solid. And part of me wants to go back and rewatch it. But it's I, a I Korean film, right? Yeah, like a... yeah, it's, uh, yeah. And uh, it was really interesting and definitely kind of played off of, like, some of the that like shit that happens at the end of the movie without spoiling anything. Uh, but the way things uh, happen, everyone has to keep making sacrifices for the people who keep surviving the events that are happening in this movie to where the ending of it is very like, holy shit. And then it's like, you know, you don't see that uh, like, you know, everyone's like, Oh, well this is the good guy and he wins and he lives. And it's like, it's all nightly nicely wrapped up in, in the last like five minutes. Like what the fuck? Like, that's not how shit really happens. Like, Oh yeah. That, I mean, that's uh, yeah. That movie was a very cool movie just because at this point, zombie stuff has been beaten to death. You know, like a lot of my, you know, my favorite, some of my favorite horror films, not my living dead, Dawn of the dead, the originals of those um, kind of just did it all. And everything's like a diminishing returns retread of Dawn of the Dead or something like that, or or Return of the Living Dead, something in that nature. But Train to Busan or, or however you say it, yeah, <laughs> probably messed that, um, that was cool because it had this like forward moving claustrophobic feel because they were in the train with it, which is like a just a different, you know. Um, just kind of a different experience. So plus, yeah, that, that one actually say, stood out. Plus, like you said, with uh, the thing, it kind of really, it starts pitting people against people. Yeah. Well, and that, yeah, that was interesting. That, yeah. I think that that's, that's kind of like one of my favorite things in horror. When you get something like that, you know, like uh, again, classic Dawn of the dead or night of the living dead, the worst people that the, the, you know, the, protagonists have to face are other humans they're not even the zombies they're right. other people's selfish things which you know 
horror's also got that too. It's got the social commentary. It's always had that, and yeah. it it's always challenging boundaries. And as you know, horror's like I guess obviously it's like the hardcore punk of. Film. <laughs> how do you feel this? How do you feel of the the focus on making a new universe for the the universal monsters? Because it started with the mum- rebranding of the mummy, but which I, I've heard is done very terribly. So I don't really know if yeah. they're going to proceed with the rest of the movies or if this basically just shot that all in the ass. I, I think that the idea of it is cool. Um, but I do think there's something we said, like, you know, uh, Marvel's going and creating their universe. And then there's all these people that are just kind of coming late to the party where they're like, oh, this, this one company is doing this and they're having a lot of success. So we're going to try to do that too. Uh the idea of it is great because Universal Monsters, that was kind of the first shared cinematic universe because you would have Frankenstein and Dracula and Wolfman show up in each other's movies. And, um, whereas I can't think of any films, you know, genre or series that predates that, that was doing that kind of thing. So they're trying to go back to their roots, like, okay, let's create a shared universe. But at the same time, there's a lot about horror that does not specifically does not thrive on A-list stars and A-list budgets. I'm not saying you can't make compelling good horror films with A-list caliber things, but part of the charm of the genre in general is fighting out the DIY spirit of it with low budget things. And that's what those old, you know, Frankenstein, all those things, those were just guys like making it up as they went along. And going back to it now with, you know, Tom Cruise and you know um i don't even think he's a bad actor but i I just don't know if that's going to capture the charm you know so there's probably i I would imagine that that's going to end up being a failed endeavor i you know i like that they're trying i would love for it to be successful but i my money i i uh would bet against it unfortunately yeah and the last kind of line of question i had the misery signals documentary let's I, it's it's really weird because obviously you heard the episode I do with Mixon, so like I've I didn't see the completed one hundred percent final edit that is out now, but I saw uh-huh. like apparently according to Mixon like the ninety eight point five you know percent done. Uh, obviously, some of like I saw you in a handful of shots that were that were there uh, at mm-hmm. one of the shows. Um, Having watched the documentary, excuse me, from being a part of the band, because there's some, obviously you weren't in the band when Jesse was in the band, so there's there's old past grievances or whatever, like, you know, they, they kind of mentioned with the traveling and some of his uh, idiosyncrasy kind of things that he does, um, his OCD nature. But then, you know, there's some of the stuff that gets brought up from around the time frame of you being in the band as an outsider watching the documentary and not having a hand in the documentary at all in the editing process or even being around for any of the filming really what was it like to watch something like that that you were kind of a part of like i feel like that's kind of got to be weird to to be a part of something but to be removed from it at the same time yeah it was it was uh interesting to watch i mean um the thing about that documentary was these guys are some of my best friends you know Ryan and uh, Brandon, Kyle, 
you know, they're some of my best friends. And Jesse, I've known since, like I was saying, like I did one of their first tours. And I would always keep it. He was actually the guy I hung out with the most on that, that early uh, tour for the band. And I would see those guys, you know, throughout the years. We did multiple tours with them. I, I toured with them when I was playing in Halut. We did a Canadian tour to, uh, together. So I've known these guys for a long time. And I, and I would consider, you know, and, and it, it, if ever I get married, those, you know, those guys are my groomsmen. You know what I mean? Those are those are my, like, brothers. They're my best friends. Mixon, too. Mixon is, like, one of my absolute best friends. But that said, watching the documentary, a lot of that story that the documentary kind of focuses on, I never knew a lot of that story. I knew that it happened, mm-hmm. but it's not one of those things where you just go and, like, hey – guys remember when those dudes died like yeah what, what was that like you know it's like a, it was like a thing i never i never talked to to jesse about it i never talked to ryan or Stu about it i just i had a, res- a respect for it and i and i just knew that it was a really heavy subject that uh weighed heavily on the trajectory of the band and a lot of those songs and uh so seeing it like it was a really emotional experience because I was like, man, these, these, like, these guys that are like my best friends, like they really went through some difficult stuff. And, you know, the scenes with Jesse and Stu in specific where they're tearing up, like mm-hmm. I was too. Watching. Yeah. I actually watched, I watched a, a rough cut of it as well. I was in the studio with conveyor they were here in the studio and like mixing the semis like this is basically done so i watched it in in the studio here with those guys and literally just like you know no shame like every guy was like tearing up and just like holy shit like the gravity of this and mm-hmm. also the the desire that in the face of such tragedy that they still wanted to make music that they still wanted to go out there with their friends having risked it all and having some of them lose it all to still do this thing, to be compelled to create music, to do these DIY tours. To me, it was inspiring. Like I was able to watch that as a friend of the band, as somebody who's been a part of the band, but as just somebody that took in the weight of the situation, who was, I was also a fan of the band and, and still supported them when they were, when, when uh, Ryan talked to me that hit like, Hey, we're going to do this uh, 10 year anniversary malice tour. I, I was like, fuck yeah that's great that's a great idea i would love to see it i will go to the shows as you you know you see me there like i was like supportive of it um but watching that that's a heavy documentary but it but it's 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 not just sad i think there's also hope and inspiration in it too mm-hmm. and that's what i drew away i mean at the end of that i was like when i watched it i reached out to those guys it was just like hey anytime you know you want to hang out, make music again, which, which is something that hopefully we will do with, with me still in the fold, actually, too. It's like something, you know, in, in the uh, bucket list of things that we'd like to do is to do some kind of collaborative recording, whether I'm producing or doing guitar or something like that, you know, to, to make some music together again. And we'll just see um, if that comes together. But that was a that was a heavy documentary to watch. I, I was it was such a, a range of emotions. I, I was so proud of Mixon for crafting what I think is one of the best documentaries that I've ever seen on on music and especially on like hardcore punk like one of the coolest most compelling documentaries that I've seen and I was like wow my friend made this this is like amazing but then also to like see the sorrow of my friends and what they went through 
but to also see how much they've grown. I think that's one of the important things is that, you know, when we were all that age, when it was like the early 2000s, we were all kind of emotional knuckleheads and <laughs> super alienated and fighting. And it was kind of refreshing to see that, like, after all that, because they like really didn't like each other for a while. Like, you know, there was some uh, intense emotions uh, after the split with Jesse and stuff like that, that had lingered on for years. And uh, to see them put that aside and to just move forward with a friendship, um, that's like beyond music, beyond hardcore punk, beyond anything else, like being able to like, acknowledge that you might have messed up or that you were harder on somebody that you should be or any of those things and to work that out and to still be friends and to still do what you love with with your friends who are basically your family is like that's a, an important and powerful story that's worth telling and worth taking note of and realizing that you know like the grudges that you might have with old friends of yours now th those don't last forever like you, the, the friendships are more important than the little grudges or the arguments or the little fights and things like that. And then when all those things are like distilled in time, you kind of realize that. And, you know, when you can look back a little more maturely on the situation, you realize how important those friendships and those formative years were. And you, and you, you hold each other closer, you know, like you, you, especially as you get older, like that's like that, that, you know, you have your family and then you have your friends, but oftentimes your friends really are your family and really are who shape who you are. And if the shit hits the fan, those are the people that are going to be there for you. For sure. And it was just awesome to see be able to kind of work out some of that. I think it, uh, it was really hard because like, I didn't want to like ruin shit for people. Like since I had seen it so far in advance, although a handful of people, one, they knew like kind of what I was talking about. They're like, wait a minute, you've seen this movie. And I go, yeah, I've seen it. What's it about? I'm like, no, I'm not going to ruin it for you. Cause like, I think half of it is just going into it, not and letting everything unfold in front of you and letting you feel everything that Matt sets up for you as the viewer to feel when things are happening and coinciding with, you know, the tour. Like it's, it's shocking how all that shit happened in a week. Like that all of those stories, all those emotions, all of those things that happened, happened within a week. And he was able to capture as much as he did. It's yeah. it amazing. It's, it's, it happened in that short, you know, I think it was like 11 days or something, like just like barely over a week. But yeah. it had been years building up to that. Right. You know, like like I, I played a show, two shows with Misery Singles, I believe. Or no, just one one that I was playing guitar, one that I was on tour with them uh, in the Edmonton area that Jesse got up on stage and would do the year, summer, and June, and just, you know, do something like that. And I remember even back then, like years ago, it was like, wow, you know, this is cool that he would do this this is pretty rad that they you know, they're at this point so like even though that took place in like a week it was over to get of growing right. up of maturing of appreciating what they did have you know and just having a better older wiser perspective on it yeah for sure i think uh something i would like to see i think down the road and, and when and if you know I can't really speak to the relationships of everybody that's ever been involved in the project. Uh, I mean, based on those who have seen the documentary, you'll kind of get what I'm alluding to. But um, with that being said, I recently was listening to Haste the Day's Coward record that they did where there's been so many different members of Haste the Day at this point that collectively they did their last record where it was like everybody that's been in the band 
kind of came together to write. So like the original lineup got together, did a couple of songs. There's songs with Steven who replaced, you know, uh, Jimmy Ryan, their original vocalist. There's, you know, the incarnations of the last band coming in to like record with the original members and so forth. Like there's the entire lineup across the whole record. And I was thinking to myself, since there really hasn't been that many members, it'd be really interesting to see Miser Signals do that. I think when there's like, or even a band like Killswitch, like it'd be interesting, like granted Killswitch did it on the, like one of the special editions of like End of Heartache. Uh, Jesse was on like the chorus of one of the songs, kind of like a passing of the torch kind of thing. Um, but it, I think it'd be interesting down the road if and when like there's ever like a, a project, it'd be interesting to kind of be like, the entity as a whole known as misery signals records something with like everybody that's been a part of the band i think that would be an interesting thing <clears throat> maybe yeah, even at one I, point there's like three guitar players two bass players uh yeah, and two vocalists I, I think, or whatever i think that hopefully maybe some kind of thing like that will happen i, I remember we wanted we wanted to get jesse to sing on absent light and he was like unsure if he still had a voice for it and he, he ended up not you know we ended up i think mixing saying the part that we were thinking for him on that record and uh, yeah i think i mean ideally for me i would like to be a part of perhaps a uh, final chapter that bookends in for for misery signals but the one thing about the film that's uh I don't know how clear it is, but there's still uncertainty as to what's happening, you know, and like, it doesn't really leave, you know, like, uh, I don't want to spoil it. So if somebody hasn't watched it and is listening to this and cover your ears for a second, but it doesn't necessarily leave off with like, hey, we're definitely going to do this and we're going back in the studio. It's just like, hey, we care about each other and this would be cool to maybe do again or maybe it's over now. There's still that uncertainty in the band. I was going to say, it was kind of weird because it's like, I got that vibe, but then right around the time of the of that being announced when Mixon and all of them announced it like a year or two early, I think Jesse went on record at an interview like, yeah, you know, the goal, we're going to go record. Like, we're, we're writing, we're doing all this stuff. And then it was just kind of like, the documentary didn't come out, and then nothing has come out from the band. So everyone's like, what the fuck's going on, and who is in the band? And it's like... I mean, yeah, it's kind of like the... Definitely- Go ahead. There's definitely ambiguity. I mean, there's there's time where like, there's for certain times where I'm like, <laughs> am, I in the band? am I not in the band? I don't really know. You know, like, um, like on my Instagram, it, you know, it says something like I, you know, I, I played past tense guitar and major singles, but at the same time, it'll be like, okay, when are we getting together to write this new stuff? Like, I, you know, <laughs> so. Um, there is that kind of ambiguity and i and i think jesse was really excited on doing the idea and i hope that he still is i haven't talked to him in a little while about it but i think it is something that i would hope that we'd eventually get together and do it just gets harder as people's lives oh i was gonna say all of you have completely different i mean i think brandon is out with matt like out in the pacific northwest it seems you just said ryan like has got his like studio or not studios like dojo or whatever for jujitsu stuff going on and his kids yeah. and Jesse, I think, is still a teacher. I think. Yep. Still teaching. So I yep. mean, and you're busy recording. So. Got a kid on the way too. Plus, uh, I was gonna say Stu's in the throes of comeback kid. Yep. He's doing so. writing for them, which is which is a really cool fit. I think Stu with comeback kid is sounds great. But, I uh, hopefully, Jesse's actually someone I would love to talk to him and 
Keith, because like being teachers and being vocalists, I think there's a lot of interesting things that would be interesting to talk to and discuss. And especially being a teacher, it's like being in a band that was, you know, somewhat relevant, like a very integral, like part of a a fledgling scene before it really like got to where it was going. It's like, I I feel like it's like, you know, when Keith was like doing every time I die and was like kind of building that it's like when people like, I know he has mentioned that like people would be like, I saw you play or he'd be at a show and like some underage kids drink and he's like, Hey, what the fuck are you doing here? And then they're like, what are you doing here? He's like, I'm in this band. (laughs) So it's like this weird duality of like, here's my profession. And then here's like this thing I do that I'm also known for and all that. And I think that'd be very interesting to, to kind of like unravel and see like what that's like. But I know Jesse's very uh, hard to get a hold of and very private. It seems so I don't really want to pry too hard and be like, yo, let me do this with you. But he has a degree of keeping to himself, but he's also, uh, he's definitely an easy person to talk to when you can, you know, yeah. he, he is a very down to earth guy. I, I, like I said, I've always, uh, had a lot of love for Jesse. Like he was the guy that I kind of hung out with the most when I first met the band. Um, last, last question. Definitively. Sure. I always play a song at the end of these, these podcasts. So what would you like me to play? And maybe give a backstory as to why you choose that song. It can be something you've produced, something you've been a part of. Yeah, I remember you did um, the Burning Empire song. Oh, that was my choice. <laughs> yeah, and I hadn't listened to that in a little bit. And I remember just thinking, like, oh, yeah, Ryan's voice is really cool. <laughs> it's been a little bit since I listened to You know, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to. I'll I'll pick a song from from Misery Singles Absent Light. Uh, okay. I'll go with the song Ursa Minor, which is a later track on the album, but it's one that me and Ryan wrote together jointly and it's one of the songs that I was uh able to write lyrically for that album that kind of connected me back with Jesse because he read the lyrics and then and then reached out to me and was like, oh, I really like the lyrics of this song. I heard you wrote them. I just want to tell you that I, I enjoyed them. And I was like, wow, thank you, man. That like meant a lot to me. Um, and so as a, a tip, you know, I, I guess, I mean, I could choose any of the songs from Malice or any of the other records or whatever, but I think that one was cool because that was purely me and Ryan writing that together and uh, is a later song that people might not be as familiar with on the album but i think is one of the cooler songs on the album awesome actually it reminded me when you guys put out that seven inch for the vinyl box set why what made you all collectively choose to do that cover to to do uh the older song to do uh was the, it like yesterday yeah on it? yep um that was an idea that i kind of was throwing like a lot of the vinyl like the box set and the seven inch were stuff like i'm kind of a vinyl geek a little mm-hmm. so i was like we should do these things because i like it when bands do these things and we had a song that we didn't finish for the album that actually is one of the best songs from that writing time period we just didn't finish it in time for the record so uh we had that come out and then we did that older song just because i loved that first ep i met those guys when they did that first ep um one of my best friends from Connecticut was actually the first second guitar player for Misery Singles. A lot of people don't know that there was a guitarist before Stu. Um, his name was Jeff Ost, and he he is actually 
Mixon's childhood best friend, which is how everything's connected. And then I knew Jeff from shows in Connecticut. Mixon actually grew up in Connecticut yep. before he moved out. Um, so I loved that EP and uh, the recording's pretty rough on it, right? <laughs> like, you know, it, it's cool, but it's like super rough. It'd be cool to redo one of those songs because I still thought that they held up and I just wanted to hear what it would sound like with, with Carl because like we haven't really talked about Carl too much, but I, I do um, I do respect Carl a lot and I do think that his voice is very strong and very powerful. I wanted to hear what it sounded like with him. You know, we, there was not been any recorded. There's no live record. There's no version of him singing any of Jesse's stuff. No. That's studio-wise. So I just thought it might be a cool thing for um, people that like the band to hear the current lineup do one of the first songs written for it, which I think was actually a Seven Angels song that just got turned into a Misery single song. I think, I think it that's was, right. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, the idea was just to do that, just to like, you know, a little bit of an oddity thing and to kind of show that the, uh, the entire catalog of the band, you know, can kind of hold up and has merit across the board for me. I mean, being a fan of the band first, you know, I, I was like, I would like to see this. So we went awesome. and did it. I was kind of wondering how that came about the more I kind of was delving in it. I was sadly not one of the fortunate few that got that box set. So it came out right when I was like doing some other shit and I was like I, I could buy this but then my wife would get mad because then we don't have extra money to go on vacations or that we had planned and all that kind of stuff I mean, so a lot of bands that I recorded here uh, was, uh, people will swing by and be like do you still have one of those because I knew I shouldn't spend the money at the time but maybe now I'd like to you know or something like that that's kind of the weird thing is like even with booking shows and stuff like that like I still don't I still am a fan of things. And that's something that I've kind of enjoyed, like with your horror movie stuff in the studio is that like, even though you do a lot of stuff behind the scenes and, and probably like the, the quote unquote, like behind the curtain shit, like is all the mystery is gone for a lot of shit for you as it is for me with a lot of things. I still am a fan. I still can remember, like I can throw on a record and it takes me back and I still am a fan of these, these albums and these songs and so forth. And they, and you know, I fucking love that. And I, I, dude, I, I feel the same way that that's, that's vital to, I don't know. You, you, I think people should never lose touch of that. I think so a lot of people do though. Back. I think and people get to be our age and everyone like, I still go like we went to Warped Tour a couple of days ago and had a really unique experience that a lot of people won't get to have of, you know, being able to go backstage and see shit side, side stage. And while I was aware of everything happening in the moment and watching the bands, I also couldn't help but like watch this, the sound guy and look around at the rig of like seeing like how everything was being done and like what it was being put together and your backstage and seeing all the work that goes into it that nobody gets to see on, on most occasions. I've and to me, of, that was crazy to see Yeah, the behind the scenes. I've been kind of falling back in love with metal and hardcore which i i like wasn't listening to for a little bit even though i was working on it i've been falling back in love with it because uh my my girlfriend's younger brother uh b-man we call yeah. him we, we 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 help raise him we like raise him and and he's getting into metal he's 13 so i've been taking him to all these shows you know we're gonna see metallica and megadeth and testament and he likes a lot of the older metal bands and it's like really captured to see it with him. And he's so excited has made, you know, where I'll just 
not even necessarily be backstage, you know, or any, anything like that. Obviously, just like just experiencing being it and seeing it. And I'm like, wow, this is awesome. I love this. I love going to shows. I want to still do this. I still am thankful for the career that I have and the opportunity to make music that I have. And I, I just try to keep make sure that that fire just never burns out. And, and having other people with you, especially a younger generation getting into it, just makes me feel like a kid again too. And it's just like. <laughs> uh, keeps me focused and thankful for everything that I've been able to do. And I, part of me still feels like I'm getting started. So. <laughs> I think that's as good a place as any to, uh, to end on, on the uh, podcast with. So Absolutely. thank you for your time. And uh, where can people find you on socials? Well, um, first off, thank you for having me on. It's been <laughs> awesome to talk to you about stuff for sure. And uh, for the people listening to the podcast, John is a super cool guy to <laughs> – communicate with to to even set up this thing because i feel like we just started texting right away like we're friends you know we never met and then all of a sudden it's like hey have you seen that this movie's being remade or seen that this thing's going on so i don't think the people that listen to the podcast get the behind the scenes fact that you are just a, an approachable cool guy that just reaches out and befriends these people that you have on here so tip of the hat to you thank you for going out of your way to do that making me blush and uh <laughs> As, as far as finding me on social media stuff, uh, my everything's under this uh, Black Freighter. So my Instagram is Black Freighter. You know, it comes from the old comic Watchmen. So uh, Black Freighter on Instagram, Facebook.com backslash Black Freighter. There's uh, Facebook.com backslash Silver Bullet Studios, which is my studio we talked about a couple times. So Or SilverBulletStudios.com, which has our discography and all the music videos that have come out of here and you know you can check that out and be like wow i never knew that he recorded this record this album sounds not that great but he's not <laughs> <laughs> so um no but I, i'm i'm proud of the work that we've done and if people want to check that out they can go onto the website or instagram also silverboatstudios.com awesome well thank you for your time yeah thank you very much man awesome to talk to you soon. so that was my chat with greg thomas formerly currently of misery signals a uh, little little speculation there as you kind of heard at the end of uh, the uncertainty of what's going on with that band with with greg in the in the rotation of the band be that as it may greg is involved in a lot of different stuff right now with silver bullet studios uh he most recently had a band from here around the michigan area uh lake effect they just finished up their ep that should be coming out soonish i think i'll be talking with uh brandon their guitar player uh, in the next couple of weeks uh, about that, so maybe we can get a little background on what working with Greg is like from a band perspective. Um, also, Greg's been really busy. The comedy show ended up happening. Looked really fun from the uh, Instagram videos and such that he posted. Uh, he recently had Hollow Earth in. It looked like to film a music video or do something. Uh, not entirely sure, but as a whole, Greg's been very, very busy, and so just really, again, want to take the time to thank him for taking the time to talk to me for almost two hours. Um, so sorry, this is such a long-winded episode. There's a lot of cool shit to cover, and I thought about breaking this into two parts, but fuck it, you know, sometimes uh, a long-form chat is really good and interesting, and when everything's on a roll, like, why not fucking keep it? So going to wrap up this outro pretty quickly. Socials. You can find Greg, as you said, at Black Freighter on most things or by searching his name, Greg and or Gregory Thomas. Uh, if you would like to follow the studio, Silver Bullet Studios, Go on to their website, silverbulletstudios.com, uh, and check them out. And lastly, my socials. 
Uh, if you would like to keep up with what's going on, who's coming up, who I'm talking to, random shit I'm doing on trips, you can do such on Facebook, Instagram, or even the YouTube channel by following me at John's Untitled Podcast, all one word. Uh, if you'd like to tweet at me, you can do such at John's Untitled Pod. If you want to email me for whatever reason, tell me I fucking suck, whatever, I don't really care, uh, you can do that at uh, johnsuntitledpod at gmail.com. Don't forget, rate, review, subscribe. However you are hearing this podcast greatly helps me. Uh, if you would like to go onto my Facebook page, like that. In this day and age, I feel like a fucking asshole for having to talk to grown adults about Facebook numbers and things of that nature, but it is part of the struggle of getting bigger guests that I have been going after. Uh, a lot of people I have on the hook but haven't locked down a date are really fucking awesome guests, and I'm hoping to line those up very, very shortly and get those episodes out to you guys because uh, I think I'm starting kind of slowly turning a corner with what I want to do with this and wanting to be broader in what I what and who I talk to and what I talk about. I think it's always going to be based in music, but I would I think so many people have interesting stories and there's there's a lot of cool shit that's going on outside of just music. Um, so I, I have a lot of variety of guests coming up that uh, if everything pans out right, uh, we'll have a lot of cool guests. And a little bit more diversity. I'm reaching out to a lot more women because you know what? Women are fucking important too. And I think we don't see enough diversity on podcasts sometimes. And it's something that I've been aware of from, from the get. And I've reached out to a lot of different women to try to get them to come on. And I have a handful that are, again, when we work out a date, um, it'll work out. But uh, it's something I definitely want to start working on is getting more women on this podcast because I think there's a lot of great women out there that have something unique to say and I would love to have this be a platform that you know I can get a lot of unique and awesome women that inspire me to do creative things and to be a better person in a lot of the different facets of, of one's life so hopefully everything starts panning out guests start lining up and, and you know keep on going so sorry this is so long-winded and without further ado, going to end the episode as we always do with a song. As you heard Greg say, we're going to end it with a Misery Signal song or some minor. Talk to you next week. <laughs>